Reading from Psalm 39. I said, I will guard my ways, that I may not sin with my tongue. I will guard my mouth with a muzzle, so long as the wicked are in my presence. I was mute and silent. I held my peace to no avail, and my distress grew worse. My heart became hot within me. As I mused, the fire burned. Then I spoke with my tongue. O Lord, make me know my end, and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. Behold, you have made my days a few hand breaths, and my lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere breath. Surely a man goes about as a shadow. Surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. Deliver me from all my transgressions. Do not make me the scorn of the fool. I am mute. I do not open my mouth, for it is you who have done it. Remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. When you discipline a man with rebukes for sin, you consume like a moth what is dear to him. Surely all mankind is a mere breath. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. For I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. Look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. This is the word of the Lord. Good to be with you all live from the church main hall. So pray that you all are having a good start to this Lord's Day. Uh, as we come to God's Word together, let's pray together. Let's commit our time to the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you indeed that you have spoken. Uh, Father, we thank you that you invite us now to draw near to you through your Word. Uh, Father, as we come before your truth, we pray that you would search us. We pray that your Spirit would open our hearts and expose to you our hearts. Uh, Father, we pray that your Word would uh, take deep root in our hearts. May it bring strength, comfort, and encouragement. Father, we seek your help. We ask that you would speak to us powerfully through your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. What do we do when life hurts? You know, the world around us is in turmoil. The pandemic has brought millions to their knees. It has disrupted lives bringing disease and death to many. Right here in, in Singapore, we face economic hardship. Uh, salaries have been cut, jobs have been lost, plans have fallen through. Families are struggling with strained relationships, made worse by having to spend an extended period of time at home together. We are worried about our loved ones, our livelihoods and our lives. The future looks uncertain. And over the past few months, maybe the past few months have left us physically, emotionally, mentally, and spiritually tired. 
So what do we do when life hurts? Where do we turn for hope? The Psalms have comforted God's people for thousands of years. And many of us find the Psalms very relatable because they express a whole range of human emotions. The Psalms have been called the prayer book of the saints. Almost, uh, the Psalms show us what the life of faith looks like, with all of its ups as well as its downs. Almost half of the 150 Psalms are Psalms of lament, which I think tells us something about what to expect of life in this fallen world. You know, if anything, the Psalms keep it real. You know, they don't try to mask the harsh realities of life, but the Psalms speak honestly, transparently, very vulnerably about life with all of its messiness, with all of its brokenness. Uh, you know, when we were planning the sermon series for the year, we decided to take a break around this period to look at a couple of psalms. And you know, when we were planning the sermon series, the, the pandemic had not hit yet. You know, we were planning this in December last year, and, and God has providentially brought us to the psalms during this period. I think it's no coincidence that he has us here uh, these few weeks as we look at these psalms of David. Last week, we took a break from Luke's Gospel to start a short sermon series on Psalms 38 to 41. And these four Psalms of David are written from the trenches, written from the trenches of trouble for our encouragement. And in speaking of David's suffering, these Psalms also meet us where we are in the midst of our difficulties and struggles. In in Psalm 39, David moves Uh, Rather, suffering moves David to break the silence and cry out to God. In this psalm, David feels the frailty of life, which moves him to turn to God and to find in God his true hope. So as we look at this psalm together this morning, I pray that it will also draw us to God, to move us towards him in the midst of our struggles, in the midst of our fears, our anxieties and our suffering to move us nearer to God in radical dependence. So just three points for us to meditate on as we work through our psalm this morning. Number one, struggling in silence. The psalm begins with David resolving to watch his words. We don't know exactly what David is going through, but we know that he is suffering. And as he suffers, David is careful not to speak sinfully. I think trials can become temptations because tough times can expose our frustration. Tough times can expose anger, can expose the bitterness in our hearts. And when that happens, we're we're tempted to respond to tough times with grumbling and complaining. We complain about our circumstances. We complain about the people around us. Uh, Maybe we even complain about God. We may blame Him for making our lives so difficult. We may doubt God's goodness. We may question God's faithfulness as unbelief begins to grip our hearts and turn us away from God. And that's how trials can become temptations in our lives. Now, David is God's appointed king, and he knows, as God's king, how callous words on his part can misrepresent and dishonor God. So he says, 
in, in the opening verses of the psalm, I will guard my mouth with a muzzle so long as the wicked are in my presence. So think about ourselves. You know, what, what do we say about God when we go through tough times? What, what do we say about God? You know, how, how might we also have to muzzle our tongue, you know, kind of guard our mouths and watch our words in tough times and trials? You know, maybe it's best to say nothing at all. You know, David thought so at first. The psalm tells us that he was mute and silent. He held his peace, which, which can also be translated, I did not even say anything good. He didn't say anything at all. David said nothing, whether good or bad. But complete silence isn't the answer either. In the second half of verse 2, David says, My distress grew worse. I tried to keep quiet, but my distress grew worse. Being silent can make our trials even harder to bear, as it can make us feel even more alone. As as David kept quiet, his heart became hot within him. The fire burned. The the heat and fire that David speaks of are a prompting in his heart, moving him to speak to God, to not be quiet. It's interesting when you compare David's words to the words of uh, the prophet Jeremiah, where he says something similar. He says, If I say I will not mention him or speak any more in his name, there is in my heart, as it were, a, a burning fire shut up in my bones, and I'm weary with holding it in, and I cannot. The agony of keeping quiet is too much for David, so he breaks the silence. He says, then I spoke with my tongue. Now, friends, God wants us to bring our burdens to him. God wants us to speak, to speak to him. So don't give God the silent treatment, especially when life hurts. You know, in fact, refusing to speak to God may be a sign of unbelief. You know, Psalm 142 says, I pour out my complaint before him. I tell my trouble before him. Psalm 142. You know, during the circuit breaker period, uh, you know, I, I knew that my heart was, had the tendency to become discouraged during the circuit breaker period. You know, as we were all confined in our homes, all our activities were put on hold, our plans were cancelled or postponed. You know, I, I knew that I would struggle with a sense of discouragement during that time. So I picked up this excellent book by Mark Rogoff uh, called Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy. And, and the subtitle is Discovering the Grace of Lament. You know, may, maybe for many of us, the, the idea of lament seems quite foreign. You know, the idea of actually pouring out our grief to God. So I read the book and was, was hugely encouraged by its honesty. You know, uh, Mark Vrogop, he wrote this book because he lost a child uh, to illness. And that's why he wrote this book. And this was his response to God in the midst of his sorrow and his grief. And in the book, he writes this, uh, this, this quote, Too many Christians either are afraid or refuse to talk to God about their struggles, whether because of shame a fear of rejection, anxiety, or a concern of being irreverent, pain can give rise to a deadly prayerlessness. 
lament cracks the door open to talk to God again, you know, even if it is messy. And as, as Psalm 39 teaches us how to lament. You know, Psalm 39 doesn't offer us easy answers. It doesn't offer us a trite solution to our grief, but it invites us to bring our griefs to God, even if it's messy. Even if we have no clear resolution in the moment. But God invites us to come to Him, to honestly lay our sorrows before Him, and to just cry out, help. We can lament to Him. Now, complaining, I understand complaining can be self-centered. You know, there's such a thing as bad complaining, right? Sinful complaining comes with this sense of entitlement that feels that or thinks that God owes us ease and comfort. You know, sinful complaining kind of blames God for suffering, accusing Him of not being good. And sinful complaining uses suffering to justify our unbelief. Right? You know, God, you, you bring me through this, so why should I believe in you? Right? So that's, that's sinful complaining. But there is such a thing as godly complaining, and, and this really is biblical lament. Godly complaining involves us humbly bringing our complaints to God because we believe He is good. That's why we come to Him, because we believe that He is good. Suffering moves us towards God, not away from Him. And because we believe that God is good, because we know Him, we cry out to Him, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? How long, O Lord? Godly complaint is faith seeking understanding. Faith doesn't mean masking our struggles behind a forced smile, pretending everything is okay. Faith doesn't mean putting up a brave front. You know, when people ask you, how are you doing? I say, fine, fine, <laughs> doing okay. No, faith actually means coming to God honestly with our struggles and saying, help, help. Friends, God doesn't want us to suffer in silence. God isn't afraid of our honesty. So instead of grumbling about God, why not talk to Him? You know, but we may, we may wonder, you know, what, what should we say to God? In the midst of my grief and sorrow and suffering, you know, I, I'm, am I at a loss of words? You know, what, what can I say to Him? You know, this is how the Psalms are so helpful for us. Because the Psalms honestly address life's pain and perplexity, the Psalms supply us with a ready store of words to speak back to God. Uh, friends, I, I believe the Psalms are God's gift to us. He, he gives us the words of faith to speak back to Him. So God invites us to, to use the Psalms and to pray the Psalms back to Him when we are at a loss for what to say so we can break the silence and speak to God. You know, as God's family, we also speak to one another. We can't bear one another's burdens unless we know and share our burdens with one another. So even as we speak to God, this psalm also invites us to speak to one another. You know, I think that's why Psalm 39 was written, not just for David's sake, but for the sake of God's people who will read it as we hear of David's suffering. And I think God calls us to speak to one another, to the people of God, so that we don't suffer alone. We can allow our spiritual brothers and sisters to walk with us through the valley. 
No, and if someone speaks to you, if, if someone brings their burdens to you, I think it's also a, a call to each one of us to commit to listen patiently without being judgmental and without being too quick to offer trivial, shallow solutions or, or platitudes, but instead just to sit with a person in their grief, to sorrow with those who sorrow, uh, to lament together as God's people. We, we lament as individual Christians, we lament together as the people of God. So don't suffer in silence. The second meditation from this text is feeling the frailty of life, verses 4 to 6. That's our second big point. You know, last month, uh, Straits Times is observed that human conceit is being punctured by the pandemic. You know, indeed, this coronavirus has put us in our place causing us to see how frail and vulnerable we are. You know, we're not in control. We are not masters of our fate. Trials are God's way of getting our attention. You know, C.S. Lewis famously said, pain insists on, upon being attended to. God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pain. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. And David breaks the silence by praying. And he asks God to help him to understand this. It's in verse 4. David asks God to help him to understand the transience of life. He says in verse 4, O Lord, make me know my end. Help me to understand this. Make me know my end and what is the measure of my days. Let me know how fleeting I am. You know, it, it's very similar to the way Moses prays in Psalm 90. Right? If you remember Psalm 90, Moses says, Teach us to number our days. You know, teach us to number our days that we may get a heart of wisdom. You know, think about this. You know, why ask God to help us know the frailty of life? Now, why, do, why would we pray a prayer like that? And why would we pray to God, make me know my end? Why is it so important for us to know how life is? David's prayer is really a prayer for humility. It's a prayer for humility. Now, David wants God to show him his end, to remind him of who he is, of what he is, especially in light of who God is. It's a prayer for humility. It's a prayer for God to rescue us from our sinful pride, to turn us away from hubris, to humble us, to undercut our arrogance, to show us that we are not self-sufficient, to remind us that we are radically dependent on Him. Make me know my end. No, indeed, how can we be proud if we are so fleeting? David says in verse 5, Behold, you have made my days a few handbreaths. You know, a handbreadth was one of the shortest units of measurement. You know, you, you know, just lift up your hand. You see, this is about a handbreadth. It's about just over 10 centimeters. So our lives are like this handbreadth. David says, My lifetime is as nothing before you. Surely all mankind stands as a mere Breath. You know, that, that phrase, surely all mankind stands as a mere breath, is repeated twice in this psalm. Uh, I think that's, 
that's the main point, one of the main points that David is driving at. You know, that word breath is the Hebrew word hebel. And you know that the word hebel appears almost 40 times in Ecclesiastes. I think in, in the book of Ecclesiastes, we, we are familiar with that, that translation, vanity. Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. That's the same word there. Breath, breath, all is breath. You know, hebel, hebel, all is hebel. You know, that's, that's why James, you remember James in the New Testament, in, in James chapter 4, he uses a similar description of our lives. James chapter 4, verse 14. You do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist, right? Mist, vapor, breath that appears for a little time and then vanishes. That's what our lives are, a mere breath. And David goes on to say in the psalm that life's pursuits are also fleeting. Look at verse 6. He says, Surely a man goes about as a shadow, surely for nothing, hebel, surely for nothing they are in turmoil. Man heaps up wealth and does not know who will gather. Have you ever sort of taken stock of your life where you ask yourself, what is all my busyness, my stress, my anxiety, my striving, what is it all for? What is it all for? How long will my accomplishments last? What, what sort of legacy am I really leaving behind for my children, for my friends, for my church? What kind of legacy am I leaving behind? You know, several years ago, you may remember this little movement where you know, people were sort of talking about their, their PSLE T-scores. And I think that the whole point of that movement where people were talking about the PSLE T-scores was to show that your, your T-score doesn't define you for life, right? So whatever T-score you get, it, it doesn't kind of determine where you'd be for life. I mean, honestly, friends, I don't even remember my T-score anymore. <laughs> so when that movement came about, I, thought, well, I don't even remember my T-score. You know, so all that striving when I was in P6, all that agony and stress over that PSLE exam, Friends, now I don't, remember, I don't even remember what it was all about. <laughs> Maybe our striving and our busyness is a bit like that as well. What is it all for? You know, as we look back on our life, will we remember that performance evaluation? Will we remember that career advancement? Will we remember our possessions at the end of our life as we look back on our lives? You know, one Christian writer put it well. He said, Listen to the clamor of the market, the hum of the exchange, the din of the city streets, and remember that all this noise, this breach of quiet, is made about unsubstantial, fleeting vanities. And I think this point really hit home for us when you know, we saw the before and after photographs of the CBD, you know, before the circuit breaker hit, you know, bustling CBD, lots of activity, and then that photo on the slide that you see, that was after the circuit breaker, or during the circuit breaker, it was like a complete ghost town. Man, man is a mere breath. You remember Jesus' parable of the rich man? He hoarded great wealth and said to himself, You have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, drink, eat, be merry. But God said to him, Fool! 
This night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? Now, some of us know that recently the, the Macau tycoon Stanley Ho passed away, and even now his children, his relatives are fighting over his inheritance. And I think that's a perfect illustration for what we read in this psalm. All that we labor for, all that we strive for, whose will they be? We don't know. And we don't, we're not in control of whose they will be. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. You know, look at verse 11 of our psalm. David says, God leads us through suffering to consume like a moth what is dear to us. You know, the word dear in verse 11 refers to idolatrous desire. An idol need not be a physical image. An idol can be anything we run to for comfort, for approval, for security. An idol is something we cannot do without. Something that replaces God in our affections, something that replaces God in the focus of our lives. You know, we, dep- we depend on our idols to fulfill our desires. We depend on our idols to calm our fears. Even good things like relationships, marriage, children, finances, a career, ambitions, even good things like those things can become idols. What are we trusting and hoping in? God uses trials to turn us from idolatry by exposing how empty and powerless our idols really are. You know, the Old Testament, interestingly, uses the same word, hebel, to refer to idols as well. Our idols are like breath. And if they are like breath, they're just like us. How, how can they save us? They have no substance. You know, Isaiah 57 says, When you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them off. A breath, hebel, will take them away. You know, one of my sons reminded me recently of my own mortality. You know, he asked me one day, Dad, do you have a will? <laughs> and then I said, uh, yeah, I think mom and I just drew up a will recently. And then he asked me, can, can I see your will? Uh, yeah, sure, you know, of course you can see my will. You don't have to wait till I'm, I'm, I'm dead. <laughs> and then he asked me this follow-up question. Uh, so all the Lego, whose will they be when you die? So a very fresh reminder of my own mortality. To be truly wise, we must know the brevity of our lives. Of course, just knowing life is short doesn't necessarily make us wise. In fact, if we just know that life is short, it, may, it, might, become even, it might make us become even more self-centered and living for ourselves. But feeling our frailty should humble us before God. True wisdom means knowing God is God and we are not. Trials help us see ourselves in light of God's greatness. You know, notice what David says in verse 5 again. My lifetime is as nothing before you. I am a sojourner with you, a guest like all my fathers. In God's sight, we are all like guest workers. 
He is from everlasting to everlasting. We are radically dependent on Him because God is God and we are not. That's why James says what he says in James chapter 4, verse 15. If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. If the Lord wills. You know, in the past, people used to sign off their letters with these two, let- with these two letters, right? D, V. D, V. You know what D, V stands for? You know, Deo volente, right? which means if the Lord wills. You know, I will come and see you next month if the Lord wills. We will gather as a church again if the Lord wills. Friends, this is what it means to live in radical dependence on God. We, we submit all our plans to Him. And we say, if, if you will, God, my life is lived in submission to your will. I think we often forget this until God lays us low. Which brings us to the last point in our sermon this morning, turning to true hope. The core truth of Psalm 39 is found in verse 7, which is interestingly enough is also the centre of the psalm. Verse 7 says, And now, O Lord, for what do I wait? My hope is in you. My hope is in you. David's silent struggle and his feelings of frailty are leading him to this point. Verse 7. He realizes that God is his only hope. All other hopes will finally fail us, but God will never leave us nor forsake us. And in verse 4, David calls God the Lord, you know, the all caps, the Lord, in verse 4. And this is God's covenant name revealed to Moses during the Exodus. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And David believes that you know, we can hope in God because of who he is. He is the faithful covenant Lord. He is merciful and gracious and his love never fails. So David cries out to God, I wait for you. My hope is in you. Yet at the same time, David is in anguish because he feels the burden of God's discipline. He says, look away from me that I may smile again before I depart and am no more. Verse 13. David laments, remove your stroke from me. I am spent by the hostility of your hand. These verses remind us that the life of faith isn't an easy one. The life of faith isn't a bed of roses. But but even as David wishes God would leave him alone, he also knows that God is the only one who can make things right. So David perseveres. He, He turns to God for help. Even in the midst of his struggle, even in the midst of experiencing God's discipline and chastisement, he knows that you are my only hope. I keep turning back to you. Only God can rescue us from our sin. That's why David prays in verse 8, Deliver me from all my transgressions. Hear my prayer, O Lord, and give ear to my cry. Hold not your peace at my tears. Verse 12. David knows that his trials ultimately come from God, and he learns the grace of God's discipline. That's why he says in verse 9, you know, these trials are not accidents 
These, these trials don't happen by chance. But he says in verse 9, you have done it. You have done it. He learns the grace of God's discipline. So he says in verse 11, you discipline a man with rebukes for sin. So friends, as, as we think about our suffering, as, as we consider the pain that God brings into our lives, we can take comfort that our trials are not pointless. They come from a loving father who disciplines his children for their good. And God brings trials into our lives not to damage us, but to sanctify us. His purpose is not to crush us, but to grow us in grace and godliness. God wounds in order to heal. He breaks down in order to build up. C.H. Burgeon said, The Lord's chastisements are not to consume us, but to consume our sins. Exactly what David says in this psalm. As he exposes our hearts, as he exposes the idols in our lives, he means for trials, God means for trials to turn us back to him afresh. As we realize that he is our only hope, and we turn to him, we trust in him to deliver us. So in times of distress, keep turning to God. Keep turning to God. And then we're called to wait as well. Wait for the Lord, just as David waited. Now, as we turn to God, we might not have the answer immediately. God might not give us relief right away. And we need to realize that His goal isn't to make our lives easier by changing our circumstances whenever we want. But His goal is to transform us from glory to glory. And there are times when that transformation takes patience. There are times when that transformation involves waiting. Wait for the Lord. He's not done with us. His work continues. and He calls us to wait for Him as He brings the work that He begun in us to full completion. And God will work in and through our trials to make us more like Jesus. Therefore, even if our circumstances don't change, even if this pandemic never goes away, we can still hope in God. We can still trust that we are being changed by His grace. And we can wait patiently for God as He grows us in faith, hope, and love. Now, waiting is not passive. It's different from waiting for the bus. Right? It's, not, it's not like waiting for the train or waiting for the bus. It's not passive. Waiting is active. Biblical waiting takes faith. It takes humility. As we wait upon the Lord, we trust Him. We submit our timetables to Him. We submit our plans and our agenda and our goals to Him. And we keep turning to God. We keep trusting the one who keeps us trusting. We turn to God in prayer in confession, in repentance. And we humbly acknowledge our need for God's grace and mercy. How is God calling us to wait for Him, even today? How is He calling us to still our impatient hearts and to call us to wait for Him, to trust Him with our lives? Now, one of my favorite hymns is this hymn by John Newton. 
And I think in this hymn by John Newton, he expresses very powerfully this idea of waiting for the Lord. Even when we feel as if the Lord's plans are running very contrary to our own plans. Right? John Newton says in this hymn, I ask the Lord that I might grow in faith and love and every grace, might more of his salvation know and seek more earnestly his face. T'was he who taught me thus to pray, and he, I trust, has answered prayer. But it has been in such a way as almost drove me to despair. Yea, more with his own hand he seemed intent to aggravate my woe, crossed all the fair designs I schemed, blasted my girds and laid me low. Lord, why is this? I trembling cried. Will thou pursue thy worm to death? Tis in this way, the Lord replied. I answer prayer for grace and faith. These inward trials I employ from self and pride to set thee free and break thy schemes of earthly joy that thou mayst find thy all in me. So this psalm really leads us to verse 7. My hope is in you. My hope is in you. You know, waiting is hard. You know, just ask any Liverpool fan. It's been 30 years, but I trust that you know that it's worth the wait. So how can we be sure that our waiting will not be in vain? Is the waiting really worth it? Is God really worth setting our hopes on? Our hope is in the one who suffered for sinners like us. You know, David was chastised for his own sin, but David's greater son, Jesus, was pierced for the sins of others. And we have all disobeyed God. We've all turned away from him. We, we deserve his chastisement. But Jesus is the perfectly obedient son. And yet he learned obedience through what he suffered. Psalm 40 says of Jesus, Behold, I have come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me. I delight to do your will. O oh my God, my, your law is within my heart. Jesus obeyed the Father all the way to death on the cross. Now David asked God to look away from him so that he could have some relief from God's discipline. But Jesus actually was actually God forsaken. The father really turned his face away from his son as Jesus bore the weight of wrath and satisfied God's judgment against sin. Jesus suffered and died to win forgiveness for us. Jesus suffered in order to deal decisively with our sin and transgression. He secures the forgiveness that we know so badly need and cannot earn for ourselves. Jesus died in order to bring us back to God if we trust in him. And because of Christ, we can be confident that God will make his face shine upon us and be gracious to us. So our hope is found in David's greater son. In Christ alone, our hope is found. Only he can save us from our sin. David wrestled with the frailty of life, but Jesus, friends, defeated death through his resurrection, and therefore Jesus is able to give us eternal life. Jesus decisively answers the problem 
of the frailty of life. And he says to us in John 11, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Jesus gives us life, even as we wrestle with our own frailty. And, and though our path should go through the cross, it will ultimately lead us to the crown. If we share in Christ, we shall also share in his glory. So what do we do when life hurts? Psalm 39 points us ultimately to David's greatest son. And Psalm 39 calls us to hope in him, the one who suffered for us, who obeyed for us, who's able to give us life. Friends, we can look to Jesus. When life hurts, look to Christ. Look to Christ, the founder and perfecter of our faith. We don't have to suffer in silence because Jesus has suffered for us. We can bring our sorrows and struggles to him. He is our life and our hope. Let's pray together. Gracious Father, we thank you indeed that you are our hope. You are our confidence. You are the one in whom we need to trust in. Father, our other hopes will ultimately fail us. The things that we trust in in this world will ultimately be taken away from us. But Father, you do not change. You are from everlasting to everlasting. We are but a mere breath, but you remain unchanging, eternal. So Father, as we consider our own struggles, as we consider our weakness, our frailty, Father, we pray that you would humble us. We pray that our hearts would turn to you afresh. We pray that you would renew our confidence in your Son, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that he has come, he has obeyed, he has suffered and given his life for sinners like us so that we might have life, that we might have forgiveness of sins. Father, as we come to you now, we pray that you would open our eyes to behold the beauty of Christ. Help us to see the King in his majesty, in his beauty. Help us to desire him, to desire him alone, to turn away from our idolatrous desires and to turn to him afresh. So Father, we pray that you will work in our hearts powerfully by your Spirit, give strength, encouragement and comfort. Move us towards you, Father, in faith, in confidence in you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.